0: bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer, Michael T. Keene.
1: Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keane, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by the Andover Haunted House. It's a nonprofit organization that raises money for several local charities. They're open for five weekends during the Halloween season, and they have over 70 volunteers. And also the Bookworm and Gift Shop. They're an independently-owned bookstore and gift shop located in the heart of East Aurora, which is just south of Buffalo, New York. They carry new and used books and have a large gift room with unique gifts, including metaphysical items. And today, I want to introduce a very special guest. While many of the young women and men who perished, in the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire could be identified, many could not. As unclaimed or unidentified deaths, according to New York City policy at that time, bodies were traditionally shipped to the city morgue at Bellevue and later passed on to Potter's Field at Hart Island. It was certain that the 22 unidentified victims of the fire would be laid to rest there as well, except for the extraordinary intervention of the Hebrew Free Burial Association. And who better to help us understand this extraordinary story and this amazing organization is the executive director. Of the Hebrew Free Burial Association, Amy Koplo. And, Amy, how are you this morning?
2: I'm great. And it's uh, really my honor to uh, be speaking with you, Michael.
1: Well, th- thank you. Um, you know, I think, uh, as a wise uh, person once said to me, Mike, the best place to begin is at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so, can you take us through uh, a little bit about your career? Uh, how you became associated uh, with the Hebrew Free Burial Association, and then of course the history of the organization.
2: I became um, associated. I had. I live in in a community in New York that supports the Hebrew Free Burial Association, and I'm going to, as we go on, I'm, I'll refer to it as HFBA. It's just simpler to do by just by its initials. And Hebrew Free Burial Association has, has always been kind of a quiet charity in the New York City area. In, you know, sort of known. Some people know about it. Some people don't. The community I live in, it was, um, it was supported. There was a community event every year to support it. So that's how I was familiar with it. And in the year 2000, the association was sort of at a crossroads, let's say. And they, the board of directors was looking for somebody who really from the outside to come in and and take a different look at everything. And I knew a few people on the board of directors and they thought I might be a good fit, although I really did not have a background in the funeral or cemetery industry but i i learned on the job and um, i'm happy to say the organization has grown since my we with my leadership our staff is larger we're doing more burials the cemetery is in uh, much better shape our that is our active cemetery which is Mount Richmond Cemetery in Staten Island our historic older cemetery which was active between 1893 to 1909 is currently undergoing a preservation project. So um, it had it had, due to lack of funds, fallen into disrepair, and now it will it, it will be in really much better shape. So these are the uh, kinds of things that I have uh, I've been working on, and just. Getting the word out, more fundraising so that we can support the work that we have to do. So that's, that's a little bit about me. Uh, more about the organization. It's one of the oldest continually operating Jewish charities in the New York City area. It was founded on October 25th, 1888 by nine men who lived in the uh, Lower East Side. And as you know, the Lower East Side was uh, where all the immigrants who first came to this country tended to to live in. And um, many in the late 19th century, many in the Lower East Side were Jewish, desperately poor. And the nine people who formed HFBA were had stores or shops or something. They weren't. They were a, a, a little better off than many many others in the area, but they saw this great need to provide this service. At that point in time, within the Jewish community, when people were coming in, the thousands from Europe because of pogroms that started in 1881, people uh, imagine living your whole life in a tiny little village in, in Eastern Europe and you know you you come to New York City, And you're, you're totally disoriented. There's nothing that's familiar. So people tended to join these, join groups, whether they were kind of little clubs or associations that were associated with a town in Europe or shtetl that they came from or an association that had, uh, that was a fraternal organization or somehow connected with what your, work skill was like an organization a little association for tailors or a little association for I don't know carvers or or whatever anyway in order to, to belong to these associations you had to pay dues they were modest but and the association did various things it would send um it would it would function as a social service organization so it might loan money to its members when they were in need it might help care for them when they were sick um, it might send money if it was a, a, a an association that was organized based on the town in Europe people came from it might send money like charity money back to the town to help the people who were still there but very importantly for people here was it it gave people a grave. And, and, and funeral services. So for whatever modest amount of money you paid, whether it was weekly or monthly, you knew when you died, you'd be taken care of in the way that was familiar. You'd be buried in a Jewish cemetery, you know, uh, with the people who you had, you were part of an association with. Now, if you, you didn't have the money to join one of these associations and they were called Landsmannschaften in Yiddish, um, then what was going to happen to you? You know, then, uh, you know, who was going to bury you? Where was your grave going to be? And Hebrew Free Burial Association kind of came into being to be one of these, like, uh, a, a shop for the poor. It was for people who couldn't afford to belong to any one of these other, like, little associations. So, that's that's kind of the history of the association. And in when they were formed in eighteen eighty eight um, and then incorporated in January of eighteen eighty nine, for the first few years they did their burials in Jewish cemeteries in the in the New York City area. They would buy buy plots and, and bury people there. And soon they, they they had a lot of business, unfortunately. There was a great need. And they ran out of they, they ran out of the graves that they had in other cemeteries. So in 1892, they bought a four-and-a-half-acre piece of land um, on, on Victory Boulevard. I think at that point, it was still called Richmond uh, Turnpike in Staten Island. And they had this, if you go on, your, on our website, you might see it, this very charming drawing of their vision of what this cemetery would look like. It was called Silver Lake Cemetery. And they planned it for 4,000 burials. Well, by 18, 1909, 17 years later, it was filled with 13,600 burials, nearly half of them babies and children. So they had to find more land, and they, they bought a 25-acre piece of land on, uh, on Clark Avenue in Staten Island called Mount Richmond Cemetery. And we've been—we still use it today. Again, we started burying there in 1909, and um, it's still in use today. And today, we still do between 350 to 400 burials a year. Back in its in the early days of the association, they were doing close to 1,200 burials a year. That's how great the need was. So and. I think at the time that it was formed, there were other free burial associations, but all of those have gone out of business. You know, they, they just don't exist anymore, as have a lot of these societies or associations that people formed in the late 19th and the early 20th century. So we're really, we're really the survivor of that time and world in late 19th century New York. So that's uh, that's it in a nutshell. I guess sure. I, I gave you a long-winded well, answer.
1: That's exactly what we're looking for, okay. the long-winded, the, the complete answer. Um, Amy, describe for us uh, what the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire was. Okay. And and how your organization came to intervene.
2: Okay. So the fire occurred on March 25th, 20, uh, um, 1911. And it was a factory slash sweatshop in what is now considered Greenwich Village. And, uh, it was in a multi-story building. And this, this factory was, I, th- it was floors, I think nine to 11. And there were some regulations, sort of safety regulations, but not that many in New York at that time. And what happened was that there were 146 people who perished as a result of this fire. There were workers, all of whom were immigrants. There were uh, managers. And what we basically know is how the fire started and how it spread and that the factory was essentially in combination with the fire, a death trap for the employees. The wooden floors in the building uh, were saturated by the oil that dripped from the hundreds of sewing machines. And um, there, there were also a, a lot of stores of fabric, which was flammable because it was all natural fibers, and paper patterns. And um, the New York City Fire Department did not have the adequate equipment to A, extinguish the fire, and to reach the ninth floor, which was where the factory started. Their equipment only reached up until the sixth floor. Now, what was ironic, these immigrant women... And men were producing what was called a shirtwaist. And a shirtwaist was a a fashion precursor to women's blouses. It was one of the first mass-produced clothing items in this country, and it became fashionable around 1890. It used a modest amount of fabric, and it was the first example of something stylish and affordable for all women as it was produced at all price points. And ironically, it was, um, you could say the shirtwaist was the first significant garment that democratized fashion for women. And it's uh, what's ironic is that this garment that gave every woman the opportunity to be fashionable was produced under dreadful sh- conditions in sweatshops. Between 1890 and 1900, the number of sweatshops in, in New York City increased by over 300%. Employing eighty-three thousand men and women. So, March twenty-fifth, nineteen eleven, was a was a Saturday afternoon, late in the afternoon. People in sweatshops work six days a week, often fourteen hours a day. And as the fire began, and they feel maybe it began from a lit cigarette that a man may have dropped into a pile of fabric scraps, um, and it caught fire. And the owners kept the doors to the stairways cl- locked because right. they thought the workers a they you know they wanted the workers to stay in place for the fourteen hours and b they didn't want the workers stealing the fabric. So one of the men who who was killed in the fire who's buried in Mount Richmond Cemetery. Uh, was Jacob Bernstein. And he was a brother-in-law of one of the owners. He was a, a floor manager, we think. And he tried to open one of the locked doors, and he died by the door trying to open it. Some some of the people were just burned to death. Some were asphyxiated by smoke inhalation. Some were able to get up on the roof. And... Uh, but... You know, once they got on the roof, what were they going to do? Some jumped because they saw the uh, the firefighters had nets, but the nets weren't strong enough to catch the women jumping from the high floors. So jumping was a surefire, sorry for the pun, method of, of dying. And, you know, as women and men jumped, they just fell through the nets and, you know, and died on the pavement. So some people died on the spot. Some people died several days later of their injuries, but it was just absolutely ghastly. The only plus side to the fire was that it galvanized the city into improving the conditions of sweatshops and the preparedness of the New York City Fire Department. So the Hebrew Free Burial Association was there. On, on site, we know that through several New York Times articles, and the secretary of the association, Mr. H.E. Edelman, was busy not just the day of the fire, but days following the fire, taking information from grief-stricken relatives. We have the burial applications from that day and making the arrangements for the 22 funerals and burials that HFBA performed. The causes of death from that day, from the fire, are painful to review. Incineration, asphyxiation, burns, and multiple injuries on some of the applications of the victims. They are identified by a box and a tag number, which is how the city had organized the victims' remains and marked them for identification. And our, in our archival records, we have the handwritten ledger listing the dead, you know, uh, that we buried. And, you know, we also have still have the original burial applications. So in terms of the people that we buried, we buried 20, we buried two men and one woman on March 27th, on March 28th we buried 12 women and two men and the remaining five women were buried on march 29 according to the new york times our secretary offered help to the non-jewish victims as well exactly what that was we don't know but you know he was there to provide advice as um as much as he could the youngest victim that hfba buried over the course of the four days uh, was a 16 year old, and um, I think the the oldest person that we buried was a 35 year old, and that was Jacob Bernstein, the man I described who tried to open the doors. And many were in their teens. Sadly, we buried two sisters; they're buried side by side. You know, many many had had been in the country for you know few weeks or months or. You know, just for a limited amount of time. Some we know were working and sending money back home. Of these sisters that I described, one was engaged to be married on the burial application. It says that her groom made the burial arrangements. And it was just, uh, you know, I mean, to me, it's, um, just unbelievable that this this number of people died under such horrible, horrible, horrible conditions.
1: Amy, um, were all of the twenty-two people buried as a result of the fire? Are they buried in separate graves?
2: Oh, absolutely! Or are they buried? No, they're buried in separate graves. They're buried in the section of sem- in the section of our cemetery where the burials were done in nineteen eleven. But they're since. Our burials t- um, are kind of consecutive, still to this day. You can kind of pick a date, and you know, find the burials are are all very close by. So um, they are buried all uh, all very close by. The graves are all marked. Some are uh, some are stones that the family came back and and put up. At least a couple of the stones have images. Uh, on them of what these um, young women looked like. In some cases, years later, the family, when they had money, came back and, and put up stones. And in some cases, you know, the, the graves were marked late, much later. You know, the family didn't have money. In some cases, there was no family even here in this country to, you know, to mark the graves.
1: And tell us again where the cemetery is located.
2: It's located, at the address is 420 Clark Avenue in Staten Island. It's open six days a week. You know, anybody in your listening audience is welcome to come and visit. Mm-hmm. If they come during the week between 9 and three uh, 3.30, there would be staff to, to help them find that area if they were interested in seeing the Triangle Graves.
1: And for people who would like to donate, To your organization, how would they go about doing that?
2: They could donate on the web through our website, which is www.hebrewfreeburial.org. And it's a great website. You can learn a lot about who we are, what we do, and uh, learn about our restoration of Silver Lake Cemetery and also donate, you know, donate to the organization.
1: Well, that's fantastic. I I can't think of a a better organization to donate to. It's just a pure charity.
2: Yes, Um, absolutely.
1: Yes. And well, Amy, I I just want to tell you, our our time has flown by. And (laughs) I just want to thank you for being our uh, special guest today and for telling us about the Hebrew Free Burial Association. Thank you again.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Michael. Bye now. Bye.
0: Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean and we're Talking Heart Island.